You're listening to an Empavillion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at empavillion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Good evening, everybody. Good evening and welcome. Welcome to the M Pavilion. We are so delighted to have each and every one of you here. My name is Christine Gordon. I'm the Programming Manager for Readings. And on behalf of Readings, on behalf of the M Pavilion, on behalf of this gorgeous balmy evening, I am delighted to have all of you here. But before we get going, before we sort of go into the formalities, if you like, of the evening, I want us all just to stop. I want us just to stop whatever it is we're doing, almost freeze in your place, just like that. And then I want us to think that wherever we've come from in Australia, whatever's brought us here to this space, this is not our land. This is land that's not been ceded. This is land that's owned by the First Nations people. And I know in 2022 that my role when I give an acknowledgement of country is to send on behalf of all of you here respects to the First Nations people, respects to the elders past, present and future. But I reckon, I reckon that's not good enough because what I already know about all of you here is that your people that read, your people that think, You're people that celebrate stories. That's why you're here. I already know that about you. So I reckon in 2022, I need all of us here to make a commitment to not just be grateful for living in Australia, for not just sending our respects to the First Nations people, but I reckon we all need to make a commitment to read the stories read the poems of the First Nations writers. And I reckon we need to talk about those stories and talk about those poetry and talk about those song lines. And I reckon, and this is what we could all learn, isn't it? I reckon the greatest gift that we could give the First Nations people, the greatest acknowledgement, is if we just shut up and listen. I think it's that easy. We just shut up and we listen and we let it take over our lives. But that is kind of why we're here tonight. That is what we're all here on this beautiful evening doing, allowing stories to take over our lives, for allowing the magic of words to take over our lives. We're all here for Omar. I want to read a little of his sort of quite formal bio But I think that you're all here because you know about him already. Perhaps you already know about his obsession with laksa and chilli paste. No, you can purchase it here today. Uh, Perhaps you already know about his obsession with lyrics and how it makes you feel. Side note, you can purchase his books here today from readings. Perhaps you know that he is quite an acclaimed artist. Another side note, you can, of course, buy some of his artwork today. Uh, The only artwork that is left is the work uh, that Tony and I have not already bought, but we'll get to that later. Anyway, so Omar Musa is a Malaysian-Australian author, artist and poet. He has released three poetry books. His debut novel, Here Comes the Dogs, was published in 2014, and I'm really not joking, changed the way that we consider literature here in Australia. It was long-listed for many, many awards. But he's also known because he's got away with the words. And let us just allow him to take over this space right here and now. Come on, let's clap him in. Thank you, Chris. Thank you so much. Good Lord. What an introduction. 
Um, thank you so much for coming out tonight, Melbourne. It's, uh, it's been ages since I performed here. I think like two and a half years since I performed here. I want to pay my respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. This, as Chris has said, has long been a place of story and song and may it continue to be. Um, I'm just going to start off with some poems before I invite my uncle Tony Birch to come up and have a bit of a chat, a bit of a yarn with me about the book, this new book, Killer Nova. It's a combination of artworks. You can see some of my artworks up here. They're woodcut prints. I learned how to do that back in my homeland of Borneo, with, uh, which is, uh, well, it's, it's an island shared by Indonesia, Malaysia and, and Brunei, if you didn't know. And my father's from Sabah, which is a state on the east coast of Malaysian Borneo. And I was over there a few years ago uh, because I'd lost the love of the thing that I was supposed to be passionate about, which was writing and creating art. I'd lost that love. I'd come to hate that thing. And, uh, and I needed a new way to express myself, but I didn't know what that was going to be. And by chance, I was hanging out with a bunch of punk rockers and environmental activists up in the mountains, um, uh, members of this group called Punk Rock Sulap. So Punk Rock is the Malaysian, Malaysianization of punk rock. Sulap is a farmer's hut. So they're all indigenous guys from up in the mountains. And they carve the wood and then stamp it with their feet onto the cloth or the paper. And by stamping it with your feet, it's a very Indonesian, Malaysian style. People do it in Cambodia as well. And they say if you dance while you do it, it imbues the artwork with extra samangat. And samangat means spirit. And so with that spirit of collaboration in mind, I got obsessed with this new art form and it opened up a sluice in my brain. And from the images, the words came back and I began to love that thing that I had begun to hate again. And so I slowly started piecing together artworks combined with poetry, scraps of conversation, random scraps of history that I'd found over the years, Southeast Asian history. And then I put it all together into this book, Killanova. So anyway, I've, I've chatted too long about my poetry. I think I need to do some poetry. Is that cool? Sweet as. I drove all the way from Queanbeyan, in New South Wales to be here, you know? Yeah, that's right. I've got some Queanbeyan people here. I love that. All right. So I'm going to start off so we all get on the same page because one of the, the coolest things I think about performance is that you take people of all disparate backgrounds and you try to create a singularity out of all these disparate elements. So I thought a cool way to do that might be to do almost like a meditation with this next one. And so this first poem, it's called, I am a homeland. So, you know, they say no man is an island. Well, I feel like every person is a homeland in their own way, you know. And the word homeland in Malay and in Indonesian is tana air. So tana means earth, air means water, because it's thousands of of islands in an archipelago and that interplay between land people and sea people is a, is a very historic and, and necessary one. But at the same time, somewhere like Borneo, there's often been many historical conflicts between people of the land, of the interior and the jungle and the peoples of the coastline, uh, seafaring people. And I myself within my bloodline contain both land people, sea people, Tana and air. And so to start this off, when I say inhale, I want everyone to inhale. And when I say exhale, I want you all as one to exhale. All right? Inhale. Exhale. Inhale. Exhale. Aku tana air. I am a homeland weighted to the ocean floor by a moral conundrum. On the waking edge between forested life and limitless sleep, sand is scalloped like an ear. It hears, listens, fizzes, rustles. Hold breath like confession, Sayang, now let it go in rhythm. Inhale, I am singular. Exhale, I appear in many places. South, southwest, the pirate winds go through my slatted bones, bind me in smoke, romanticism fattens and bloats around the liver, realpolitik and electroshock to the heart, coins sink upwards out of my pores and stories are engraved with my blood. There are durian husks and potato skins on these shores. Inhale, I am yearning, exhale, 
I am in consequence. I hear them call me an illegitimate kingdom, fake Muslim, snake oil trade port, middle class mirage, an empty plot where the rivers commingle, orchids and torch ginger, my garlands have started to rot. The plastic fish mounted on the wall is singing its last poorly penned jingle. Inhale, I am fraud. Exhale, I am truth. North, northeast, I am a land of disorder. My existence, resistance to admin and trade companies, cannons and capital. Colonizers fuck me with mechanical dicks to extract my hidden glint. Drill down into my flesh and there lie the oil wells that will set the forest aflame. Inhale, I am anger. Exhale, I am acceptance. At times, I am glacial peak and polar ice cap, but hard shards, sharp from chiseling, melt and become the rising tide. The eagle's swoop swells to tempest, typhoon, cyclonic midnight marauder. There never has been, never will be a force of nature like me. Omar bin Musa, the monsoonal flow state over the loose leaf, the Bruce Lee when he says, be like water. Inhale, I am cliche. Exhale, I am ambiguity. Impossible to bear it seems these days, but the words Tana and Air are combined in me. Land people, sea people, once warring factions, but now two parts combined into a necessary whole. But remember, the tide reverses often and I am no one, hold up, I am no one thing. Inhale, exhale, I am a homeland. Thank you. Thank you so much, appreciate that. All right, so this next one, that was more influenced by Borneo, obviously, uh, but this next one is influenced more by the place that I grew up. I was born and raised, Queanbeyan, Australia, you know? And it's kind of funny, like when someone of my particular background or with a name like Omar bin Musa uh, dares speak up in public about certain issues or maybe even just dares to speak up at all, uh, you elicit a certain type of reaction from, uh, you know, a segment of the Australian population. And uh, one of the things that these... Um, these old chestnuts in the, in the peanut gallery, level at your boy, to mix a nut metaphor. These, these, these wing nuts, these, <laughs> these fucking old chestnuts and wing nuts in the peanut gallery, they often say to me, they say, that bloke, that bloke is he's bloody un-Australian. You know, they always level that one at me. And, uh, and there, I wrote an open letter to the people who call me that. But it was actually sort of aimed at one dude in particular who goes by the name of Mark Latham um, that you might have heard of. He was almost the prime minister of this country. And uh, I actually voted for the cunt in 2004. <laughs> I bet heaps of people here did. You know, I was between the devil and the deep blue sea at that time, between John Howard, bloody Mark Latham. Anyway, this is how he repays me, is by sending all these vitriolic hordes after me, saying that I need a bullet in the head and all that. But anyway, I thought I'd uh, write an open letter. Can I do that for you? Can I read that for you? All right. Let me tell you what's un-Australian, mate. Australia, it's time we shuffle this country off to deed poll, I reckon. Sign the papers, add two letters and rename it un-Australia. Un-Australia an ill-advised artwork defined by negative space. We define selves by what they are not, crude white lies told in blackface. Hey, come watch the parade in Australia, land of the fair-skinned, fairy-bred, fair guy. Let's put a shark net around the island. Mummify childhoods in barbed wire, but please make sure it's 5,000 Ks out of sight, out of mind, so we can relish our snap crackle. Pop, 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 pop. Watch Fruity Loops bounce around the porcelain. Same colour as the flag we wipe our asses on when we take a plebiscite. Go Postal 
in Australia, land of the culture wars. Get crop dusted by the heroin white noise of bureaucracy, stunned and softened up. Now jingo grenades bomb sense of self to phantom limb. You know the deal. Axe attacks, stop the boats. Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. Oi, it's un-Australia, where politicians roll up shirt sleeves and go panning in the mainstream. The river formerly known as Shit Creek. Oi, they'll sift up some nuggets of fool's gold, but not even a mining boom could buy compassion. They smear Vegemite vows on the toilet wall. Go on, have a read. That which was written, that which was hidden. Punch drunk love, left the bar flies smitten. Drive it like you stole it. Get in where you fit in. The brakes wear out when a nation's joy ridden. It's un-Australia. Hear voices detonate from tuck shop to quarter acre block. Freedom of speech! Freedom of speech! But beware the fine print, my friends. All need not apply. If you're black, brown, Muslim, woman, queer, smart, proud, and you dare question a cross-eyed sacred cow, they'll twine newspaper headlines to a noose and lynch you from a daily telegraph poll. So welcome to Un-Australia. Thanks. (laughs) All right. I'm just going to do two more. Um, I'm going to do one that's very, very different from that. This one's about a particular type of flower. Like last year, I was, uh, there was like a little gap in space time and the plague. And I drove up from um, Queanbeyan into the Blue Mountains. And I saw this particular type of um, flannel flower, like a pink flannel flower. And uh, it takes, you have to have the perfect conditions for these things to bloom, you know. And uh, they only bloom like, twice a century or something like that. And so I was very moved by that and I was moved to write a poem about it. <laughs> it goes like this. Called forth from the scorched earth, these flannel flowers bloom once every 50 years. Grey-pink umbrellas, tiny, feathered, furred like moth wing, constellated across this burnt-out canyon. We trek through blackened banksias, lignotubers gnarled and twined in the peat. Their burst pods like so many eyes and mouths, like omnidirectional cameras pointed every which way. Out into the valley where the cliffs far beyond are divided as if by design, upright plains down which pewter streams when it rains sometimes. Up at the bluest memoryless sky, and towards us, lunching in a hollow in the rock. Miri is crouching down with Kimmy to look at the flannel flowers in the dust and the purple fringe lilies amongst them, which are delicate beyond belief and last only for one day. Miri is not to know that this might be the only time she or we will ever see these blooms, inherit through touch their grace, Touch them as if testing a new word. Miri is only two years old and her world yet ahead. The old couple who arrive as we leave have come to sight these flowers for the first and last time, like certain eclipses, like comets, these heavenly bodies at our feet. Last week, Jessie saw a woman shake ashes from the cliffs here, out into the valley where the winds whistle and sing hymns beneath black cockatoos' wings that riffle the bracts and bow the heads of flannel flowers who lay so long in refuge, made possible only by the perfect conspiracy of catastrophic fire, time and deluge. Thank you. Sweet as. Um, I just want to thank M Pavilion and Readings, especially Joe Rubo. I was going to call him his nickname, Joey Dolce, I call him, if you remember Joe Dolce, but his real name is Joe Rubo. But thanks so much uh, for having me here. It's a real honour and a pleasure to be doing this. After this uh, little song that I'm going to do, let's just start it. Let's start it off. Let's see, see how it sounds. We didn't sound check this, but um, I'm going to bring it back to my smoothed out 
hip hop R&B days. Hey. <laughs> Take to the sea, let me make it by you. I wanna pray at your feet. You got your eyes on me. I got my eyes on you, my eyes on you. It's like you're dripping in gold. Tell me, do you feel the same? Na 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 na. Rose gold lover, rose gold lover, rose gold line, rose gold line, rose gold lover. Slow jam, love you like a homeland. Love it how you slow dance, I love it how you kiss. Love your independence, your laughter, imperfections. I'm like, oh my god, this is it. I'm saying, oh my god, this is it. It can't be. You slip into the room in a kimono made of batik. Calm me when I can't sleep. I wanna buy you good books. I'm talking Maggie Nelson and Haruki Murakami. No, they've been telling you beware Thinking of putting up defense Stare at your feet, then you reappear Stretching your feet in a beach chair Showing me your heart, we can meet there Infinite world when we see fair See fair on the crystal sea Tell me the time and I'll be there Be there, be there Baby, I will be there Even cavemen put flowers on graves Black blooms like an eye at a rave Our love felt historic like maybe there was some other time when I was yours and you were mine. Maybe you're a Siamese tea trader and me a troubadour. We drew scented combs through each other's hair in a forgotten Malay kingdom somewhere. But in the end, you were a clove cigarette, a beautiful destroyer killing me softly. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, bringing it back. Bring it back, bring it back, bring it back, bring it back for me. <laughs> All right, I'm going to introduce a very special guest to the stage to do a Q&A with me. This is Uncle Tony Birch, one of my favourite people, someone I admire, look up to, author of many classic books, Shadowboxing, The White Girl. Give it up, Uncle Tony Birch. Let's go. We're obviously COVID safe these days. <laughs> oh, you got one. Hello, um, hello. Is that just working? before yeah. I start, I also want to pay my respects to both Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. And it's such a privilege always to um, speak on, on their country. Um, we take this very seriously. Um, so thank you very much. It's a bit of a difficult ask tonight because... Um, we had lunch today, Omar and I, and we've known each other for a long time and he can write poetry, he can write prose, he can sing, he can carve wood, he can carve glass, he can deliver up beautiful spices. So I'm like the drunken uncle at Christmas who just turns up. <laughs> and what do you do? I just said to Joe, I write prose. <laughs> so um, I don't drink, so I won't be so bad as a drunken uncle. Um, I want to say at the outset that um, this is a remarkable book. I read a lot of poetry. I occasionally write 
bad poetry, but I read a lot of poetry. And from the moment I picked this book up and, you know, immediately you think it's a beautiful object, but it is an object with such heart, such energy, such great ethics, politics. And I read through the book several times. And one of the things I do take seriously if I'm in the interview chair is to make sure that I do a lot of work, a lot of research and always have twice as many questions as I could ask in case I get someone who doesn't say much. Um, and I said to Omar today, this is a very different situation because each time I wanted to write down one of those sort of precise questions that allows the author to expand on the precision of the great question, I felt it was sort of meaningless and a bit superfluous um, because there's so much... It's such an organic quality of the work that everything is connected, everything is interrelated and therefore to focus in this instance possibly on a specific poem, a specific woodcut, almost to isolate any of the storytelling, it doesn't seem to fit this conversation. Um, so what I decided to do was um, I think to allow Omar... I think it's a real journey with this work and it's a real journey that Omar has taken in the last couple of years. So I'm going to ask the questions which are much simpler questions than I would normally ask, but questions that I hope allow Omar to be much more expansive to give all of you a greater insight into the enormous energy that has gone into this book produced by Omar Musa as author, but not produced alone by Omar Musa, a remarkable work of um, collaboration. And the other issue, and whether Omar wants to deal with this or not, I'm going to leave to Omar, but other conversations we've had in the last few years have been, I suppose, about a transformation in Omar, not only through the writing, but around the idea of what he wanted to be, who he wants to be as a creative person, who he wants to be as a writer and what community does he speak with, is of and feels that sort of heart of collaboration with. And we know that Omar's gone through a, a real transformation. He's, he's a bit thinner. I was a bit, when I saw him there, I wanted to feed him. Um, <laughs> he's got rid of that, you know, Queenbian skinhead look. Yeah, you know, I come from Fitzroy. You see these Queenbean skinheads come down to Melbourne, they shut around you, say, go home, son. Um, so he, he's got the beautiful hair going and I think he's, he's incredibly mellow. I am a bit disappointed that he swore so much tonight because when we were sending texts last night and I happened to use the swear word, it's like I'm talking to my grandchildren now. I use the swear word, he goes, oh, could you not swear in front of a good Muslim boy and here he is tonight. So... It must have been a joke. So <laughs> what I want to ask to start with then, there's a lovely introduction to this book where you talk about being on that ferry and going up the river and in a sense going to a place where you weren't sure how you'd be welcomed or what was going to be there. But my sense of in that moment that you, you are looking for a home or you're looking for something, but there's a great sense of, feeling lost. So where were you at the moment before you were introduced to the woodcutting community? Or the, yeah, where were you? Yeah, I mean, I was in a vortex of mental health problems, um, addiction, uh, alcoholism. Um, I had sort of wedded myself to this idea that my art and my writing defined me, but I felt like um, that thing had um, betrayed me and that it was... Um, starting to erode me and that uh, instead of sort of bolstering me or, or allowing me to flourish as a human being um, with each piece of work that I put out to the public or in a piece of writing or a piece of music, I was diminishing and that eventually there would be nothing left of me um, but thin air, you know. And, I, and, and so I took this journey upriver and in Bornean mythology, you go upriver sort of to the land of the dead um, and I was almost feeling, feeling that way. But instead of that, I found something that was more like pure life and rejuvenation 
um, within myself um, and through my connection to people who were strangers in my homeland but also felt very familiar to me. At the same time, when I was going up the river, I saw great beauty, I saw primary rainforest, but I didn't see much of it because through government corruption uh, and logging, whether it's in Indonesian Borneo or Malaysian Borneo, the landscape has been completely um, destroyed. Uh, indigenous people's lands have been um, dammed, chopped down for oil palm. And so I saw a lot of horrendous things, open cut mines and, and the effects of logging as well. So it was kind of this contradictory feeling of being back in the homeland. And then I myself had contradictory feelings as well um, because I felt this sense of connection that I later expressed through my art but I also felt that distance that I think a lot of people who are part of a um, diaspora or grew up away from the homeland feel. So that there were times I felt um, like a fraud or an interloper. There were other times I felt like a tourist. There were other times when I was reading old accounts that were usually from the perspective of the, of the British who came um, and settled in North Borneo. I felt almost like some type of... <laughs> like I was looking through the lens of a colonial anthropologist. Like, and so I, I feel like you can inhabit a lot of these contradictory kind of identities and that's what I did. But one thing I didn't realise was that the whole time I was going up the river, I saw, I saw wood carving everywhere. The beams of the longhouses, um, spirits and animals were, were carved in, into the beams on the boats themselves. And then when I crossed back over from Indonesia to Malaysia, that's when I met... Um, met the woodcutters and activists who taught me this new craft. And it was something that felt like it came so naturally to me. And, and the, the, the guy who taught me first up, his name uh, he's a punk rocker called um, Eric Lost Control. That's, <laughs> it's not his government name. Um, <laughs> Eric Tan's his real name. But he, he, uh, he's from my dad's hometown, Sandakan. And, and, um, and he looked at me because he said, brother, I said, I don't know what to carve. You know, he said, just he said, carve what you feel. And so I was so sick of dealing with the dark side of human nature in my writing and scratching those scabs and um, talking about the ugliness of Australian society and the violence of men that I just wanted to carve something beautiful. That was all I wanted to do. I wanted to create something beautiful. And so I carved the most beautiful thing I knew, which was a, a Bornean clouded leopard. And it appears many times in, in the book. And, uh, and then he looked at me and he just, I don't know, he just said, this comes naturally to you. And the more I thought about it, you know, my uncles were carvers of wood. Every tribe in Borneo has carved wood for time immemorial. And so it felt like I was, yeah, connecting into something ancient, but doing it in a modern way. Fuck, that was a long answer. Sorry. No, that, um, the longer the better. and I don't have to do much work. Um, so I'm really interested in that because you talked about, just then you talked about at times feeling like a fraud, feeling like, see, I couldn't even sing a song to save myself. My voice is so old and croaky. I, I'd be like, um, I don't know, Tom White, yeah, he'll do. Um, one of the things that really interests me here is that you talk about the hesitancy of even approaching um, this guy to, to be involved. So what I was interested in and thinking of you as a poet and then, of course, looking at the book in um, fruition, I'd like you to tell us about how they... When were you relieved of that hesitancy or how did you, you know, when did you feel their generosity? And while you're carving, did you think initially, and I don't, were you going, were you thinking you were going away from yourself as a poet or you're already starting to think about integrating the wood carving with the poetry? No, I wasn't thinking about that. Although even on that first woodcut, I did write a little couplet, which was, when the loggers are away, the leopards will play. And I, so I couldn't, I felt like it was too much of a leap to just dive into the visual art. I had to tie it to the words in, in some way, you know. But I, I think it was this sense of freedom because I'd done that terrible thing that a lot of us in the arts do, which is to take myself too seriously. I took my work too seriously, you know, and at that point. And I'd lost that kind of playfulness that I think is necessary to making good art and it's what draws you to the joy of it in the first place you know I'm, um, I'm not sure like when you're a kid and you pick up a pen or a crayon or start humming a melody you're thinking oh I'm going to speak truth to power here you know you're, you're like <laughs> you're like uh, I mean maybe it is just by virtue of what your identity is or something like that but most of mostly it's it's the pure joy and the fun and the playfulness of it but the more and more you turn your passion into a profession like like I did and then there was pressure from outside, but mostly 
internally imposed pressure from myself, I started to, um, yeah, get, get frozen and to lose that. And, uh, and I think I could always, even in those years, articulate or intellectualise the idea that even if you're talking about deadly serious topics, it is important to do it in a, a playful way and experiment with form um, and find interesting vessels with which to carry your ideas. Um, but I feel like I kind of I lost that. And so what I found with the woodcuts was that um, I could just let, like there was no expectation. No one expected me to ever be good at it. I didn't expect to be good at it. I could just be fun and as Eric said, just carve what I felt. Uh, and that was what rejuvenated me. But I found that their spirit was, was very welcoming. Um, and, and also because I don't think, you know, Borneo is not exactly like one of the most known regions in the world. So I, I don't feel as if they thought I was trying to appropriate some type of cultural cachet or anything like that. Um, they could sense that longing in me. Um, they, could, they met my family, you know, because only my mum really lives here from my Aussie side of the family. Like everyone else lives over there. Um, and so I, f I found that there, there was a really welcoming spirit and it was almost like it came from a different kind of philosophical lineage, um, you know, in terms of the approach to creating art through collaboration. What's that? Oh, rat. Fuck, I hate rats, man. <laughs> I'm like Winston in 1984. <laughs> um, that's foul. Okay. Um, um, uh, yeah, collaboration. I, yeah, no, no, I, I want to, um, because I've got, I want to talk about your mentor in regard to collaboration in the poem that you 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 identify as a collaboration, but I want to stick with this. So the word is it for spirit, Semagal? Semangal. That I was really taken with also because um, just again while you're talking, but reading the book, reading the um, short essay, is that we talked about that state that you were in going there and then accepting the spirit and is... I felt both a sense of letting go and then returning or recovering self. And I have to say that I do find a real affinity in a very different way, but similar. Um, when my younger brother died really suddenly, which is about two years ago, I felt completely wrecked by what had happened and a bit like, what am I doing? You know, what, you know I'm writing novels. My brother just died. Why am I doing this? And I, I, I left my job. Um, I hung out on the couch with my dog for about three months. My dog, Jack Russell, yeah, they put on weight, their head gets small and their body gets bigger. But what I did every day, I walked along the same stretch of river that my brother and I had walked along and swam in for years. And I found myself letting go and then getting spiritually connected and rejuvenated by that walk. So I love the word. And so rather than just a spirit of generosity, um, there seems to me that also you, you not a, like a spiritual enlightenment, but you, you felt that shift in you by doing the carving and being with these people. Yeah, definitely. There was that sense of community and collaboration and plugging into something um, bigger than yourself. And I think like, you know, because we're often so individualistic here in Australia or in, in the West and, um, and each of us tries to act unto ourselves as our own God or something like that um, and, and loses sight that we're actually all plugged into different communities or, or should be and, and that assigns or ascribes meaning to our lives. Like that's the only thing I really know that ascribes my life meaning is to be plugged into something bigger than myself. Whereas for so many years I felt completely adrift um, as an individual and so there was that. But then there was also the kind of response to seeing the natural world, the precious and vanishing natural world, whether it was the animals, the you know, the clouded leopard that I'd never seen except in my dreams and reveries or, or whether it was the sacred hornbill birds um, or orangutans, you know. Um, but then, then also just the primary rainforest, it was me sort of res responding to nature. And so when I got back and as COVID hit, um, I'd already made the decision to, to kind of put down the pen uh, in terms of like writing poetry and fiction and everything and, and music. And I ended up going back to TAFE and studying horticulture 
and that was directly um, influenced by being over there and realizing that um, you know we need to take care of each other, obviously, but we need to take care of the natural world as well and the the havoc that's being wreaked uh, upon the earth by various you know corrupt governments um, around the world and, and also by us individually, um, whether it be just you know chucking our trash on the ground. You know, I, I saw. Um, my ancestral sea is just full of, of plastic. And, you know, I was helping out at a t turtle sanctuary over there. And every day we would quite literally pick up tons of plastic from the beach and it was, it was endless, you know. And so I thought that in kind of a practical way, instead of just, well, how do I say it? It's like I wanted to stop destroying myself and to start growing things. And then from that quite literal growing of plants, flowers, chilies, whatever. <laughs> um, it gave me inspiration to rejuvenate myself and then my, my art as well. So one of the things we spoke about this at, at lunch, about the ego or about often working as individuals. And as we saw tonight, when you perform, you have a remarkable presence, a great energetic presence. But one of the other aspects that, I think brought about changing you was the nature of collaboration, both at a broad level of being part of, part of a group. And I'd love you to answer this, a, a two-part question, if you could talk about um, the conversation you're having about, you know, decisions are made and solved in that circle of communication rather than individually. So I'd like you to respond to that as a collaborative discussion. But also in your specific poem, um, Ghost Forest, you say, written in collaboration with Tish... Tishanti Doshi? Tishanti Doshi. Yeah. So I'm interested in that. So one, if you could give us an insight into that discussion about the collective discussion around major issues um, and also about how much do you think the, the trip itself influenced you to think more about a writer as part of a collaboration rather than a writer as author individually? Yeah, I... Um a lot of the book is about sort of unpicking and unpacking uh, certain mythologies, whether they're, you know, national mythologies around Australia or whether they're kind of private mythologies you've built up for yourself around the idea of uh, love and romance or, or writing itself, you know. And one of them I think that I'd um, believed for many years was that especially an author or a poet is almost like an individual kind of like a samurai out there um, working individually against the slings and arrows of the world and almost autocratically like imposing their will over the page or over an audience. And it was a, it's a solitary individualistic pursuit. And I remember I was asked to do one of those awful things where it's like 10 pieces of advice for a young writer or whatever. And I was like, I, I literally wrote this. I was like, be the dictator of your own art. No good art comes from democratic referendum, right? And I believed that for years and years because I was like, you have to have that singular vision and nothing gets fucking done if you don't. And then, but, but then like, as, as the years went on, especially after um, hanging out in Borneo with this particular mentor, Yi Ilan, she's like quite a well-known, um, did someone just cheer Ilan, are there? Yeah, good, I, she's a real kind of hero of mine, a kakak, like a big sister. Uh, well, she's a lot smaller than me, but she's a big, big little sister, uh, a little big sister, yeah. and. Um, she, um, and she has this idea about the tikar, which is the traditional woven mat that uh, is all throughout the, the archipelago and how um, before Europeans came, people would sit around the mat equally in an egalitarian manner, exchanging ideas, cross-pollinating, um, and, and it was sitting on the ground all equally face-to-face trading stories, trading ideas, um, yarns, um, weaving, drying fruit and fish, all of these sorts of activities. But then uh, she sort of talks, I mean, you know, these were feudal societies, so I'm sure there was still an imposition of power in some, in some way. But she talks about how when the Europeans come, one of the first things that they did was the imposition of violence through administration and through the table. Like we quite literally didn't have the the table before the Europeans came. And that suddenly becomes an object full of a dark symbolic power of violence, not necessarily through cannons, 
but through administration. And, uh, and so she is sort of about unpicking that and, and talking about how there were homegrown ideologies and philosophies, if you will, um, that were more egalitarian, but were considered sort of, um, well, yeah, savage and simple by, by the colonizers. Um, but I kind of took that spirit into the book and I wanted to celebrate the collaborators that I had who were woodcutters, but also start creating poems that were collaborations. So there's one in there with Tishani Doshi, Indian writer, one with Inua Elams, a Nigerian writer. And in a way it feels false of me in a book that's trying to celebrate collaboration to have my name on it. Because the people who taught me, they never signed their individual names on the big artworks that they, they all press together with their feet. It's always the collective name. But I guess this was just my sort of entry point into, into that way of thinking and completely reassessing the way that I looked at art and creation. Thank you. Um, I, I was so taken with that um, today, that, that conversation that you had with her. Um, and obviously, I mean, yeah, we call it in, in Aboriginal community, yeah, people talk now about yarning circles, but it is a fact that the conversations that you have collectively with other, well, for me, with other blackfellas from Victoria, you can, you approach subject matter differently, you feel, you feel um, energetic, but you also feel safe. So I think it, that's interesting around the table because the table's also a barrier. Yeah. So there's a safety, and I don't want to go into detail, but I worked for the last five years almost entirely of Aboriginal women, except for um, Professor Gary Foley. Um, and we, had, we have really important discussions around domestic violence that I could never have outside that group of women and that I could never have outside that space because there'd be all, all sorts of issues to deal with which wouldn't allow that conversation to take place. And it's a really safe, because we're all survivors of childhood violence, it's a really safe place to talk about that. Now, the other thing I'm interested in... Um, and I'm going to ask you some quite, I suppose, specific questions. I'm interested in colour. I'm interested in the way that visual and written text works together to finish off. But um, I love this piece with the kickboxing. Um, and it says, he quit the Shabu and found kickboxing and God. Um, kickboxing and God, that's good to get both of them. Um, <laughs> what I'm interested in here is that to what extent did the trip, the wood carving meeting this wonderful group of people, clearly it had an effect on your psyche and your mental health and well-being. What's the relationship there with something that became, I think, regarding your physically um, being, treating yourself better physically to um, regard, respect your body in that way of, of wanting to do physical exercise. But, yeah, when I, every time I see you to write, it's first I had to catch you early in the day. No, not too early in the day, at midday. <laughs> Um, what was the transformation physically or how does that relate to what you're doing? How does it relate to the people? Yeah. Well, I don't know. They're party animals, you know. They're all <laughs> punk rockers and, and, you know, you see. You're the odd one out. Well, no, I was loving it back then. It was like a real sense of connection because, like, you know, Malaysia is so conservative and puritanical, um, especially peninsular Malaysia around Kuala Lumpur, and, you know, and all that. Um, you know, I'm even though heaps of young Muslim kids are like addicted to ice and drinking and, and stuff, like it's still, you know, to publicly put that out there that I'm a, a, a Malay Muslim man out there drinking. But I've sort of, um, I don't know, I, I really, I, I thought, oh, this is like a controversial thing to say. You'd get you censored in Malaysia. I mean, here it wouldn't seem that controversial. But to me, tattooing and alcohol has existed in Borneo long before the advent of Islam, you know, um, ever, ever came there. Um, and so, in some ways, it's, it's false to deny that part of our heritage as well. Um, yeah, anyway, that's probably going to get me, you know, banned at the border over there at some point. But, um, but it was like something that uh, was a point of connection with these guys, like with all the rice wine and, and all that sort of stuff. But then, you know, it's something I've had a problem with for many years. And so, you know, it's not all... It's not you all got off the wagon time. over there, but it was obviously when you came back. No, I was back here. <laughs> it must have been me. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. definitely your influence. Okay. I want to ask you a couple of quite specific questions. I'm really interested. So you have a poem called Indigo, but I love this beautiful wood, wood carving, woodcut, um, autumn decides where you have the ginkgo leaves. Yeah. So I'm interested in things like how do you choose colour? 
why do you go for you got beautiful indigos and blues over there on the um, item for sale. So as someone who'd worked yeah, with text, how did you start to think about colour in relationship to what you're doing? I didn't think about it too much. I just liked the black and white ones originally um, because they reminded me of those kind of activist posters um, and, and kind of political propaganda posters from all around Asia. So for ages, I just wanted to stick with that. Then I slowly went into the, into the Prussian blues and then there was a, a printmaker, Claire Jackson, who helped me out a lot when I got back to Canberra, uh, who was really good at those fades um, from, you know, oftentimes a, a red to a pink or orange to a yellow. But I kept it simple and there's one big reason for that, that I, I kept it simple, is because I'm actually, I'm colorblind. And I, I, I often confuse all sorts of colours and, and so I, I get a bit embarrassed about that. Like when I'm in the print studio or I'm making glass work, I'll be saying, oh yeah, I like that, you know, that green or whatever. And then they're like, oh, it's red, you know. And, um, <laughs> and so for me, it was just, I, I felt, um, yeah, I don't know, I felt embarrassed to like experiment too much with colour. That's why I keep it like really, really simple. <laughs> well, I actually, but well, I actually thought the range of colour was, Sensational, maybe because you're colourblind, you don't understand there's actually different colours in the book. So, um, okay, I want to ask one more, well, not a, well, a, a creative question, and then um, you're going to close with another poem, I believe. Um, but look, there's another question that kept intriguing me as I was reading. And I mean, when I taught writing, I was often interested in the way that um, visual culture and written work went together. And I'll, here, I talk mainly around the way photography and poetry work together. Sometimes painting and poetry work together. What intrigued me with this is that you talked about in that first carving you did of the snow leopard, you had a little, you had put something on, a few words down. What you notice in looking at the book, some of your, the woodcuts, there's, you know, a lovely short poem or phrase with it. And then, of course, we've got what we might call, you know, standard of a lot fuller poetry. I'm really interested, and maybe, again, you think, well, I don't know, I'm not sure why I was doing it, how I was doing it. At, at what point, when you're doing some of this work, do you feel this, this is not only a visual work, it's a written work, and I might have a, a written poem sitting alongside of it, or that it seems to written, written text working its way into the image. How did that process work in the act of creation? It always starts with the image first. I don't, I don't plan it. I mean, a lot of my artist friends think I'm really crazy and that I should get an iPad and design it all first, but I don't. I, I like to just draw immediately. Well, firstly, I, I paint it black, paint the wood black, because then you can see it as it goes, um, how it might end up. Otherwise, it's a real head fuck, you know, to try and figure it out. What's going to be black? What's going to be white? You swore again. Yeah, I sorry. Sorry. That's, uh, and... Um, <laughs> The, uh, and, and then I just draw directly onto it and I start carving it and I carve the main images and then I sort of create the effects around it. But the words are always, the words are always last um, and they're sort of distilling in my brain as I'm creating the imagery, distilling, 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 um, usually down to two or, or four lines of, of poetry that are hopefully like have no, no gaps in them. Like they're really, really highly polished to a sheen. And, um, and so it's almost like, you know, I was relating it to wood, wood carving. I heard that the Maori um, carvers always put the eyes in yeah. last. And I'm kind of like that with the words. And it, and it also replicates um, a process I use with, with prose, something like the novel um, Here Come the Dogs started with an image or a vision. And oftentimes the poems start with just a single image that I have in my brain that I can't shake. And then I reverse engineer a story or words from that image. This is the same process, except it's quite literally an image on the page or on, on the paper. And so it creates this effect that I'm going for, which I feel like I've always been going for, but I'm hopefully getting better at as I you know, work harder and experiment more, which is to create, uh, how do I say it? I always compare it to like, like an iPhone, you know, it's got a, a user-friendly interface, but then like a complicated operating system. That's sort of what I want to create with my, with my work, is something that's very inviting and, and seems simple on the surface. But then when you drill down beneath the surface, there are many, many layers and it's very complicated and like complicated ideas, but presented in a kind of simple and potentially inviting manner, um, you know? And so it's kind of, 
it's a bit of a weird one because I think creating discomfort in the audience is an important thing as well. So it's like inviting someone in to a world of madness and hell, you know. <laughs> so yeah. That's kind of not always what I'm going for, but with something like this. Okay. Sure. Um, just to um, wrap, so Omar is going to finish us off with, a, with another poem. Um, but before that, I just want to... So my public service announcement is, of course, that this remarkable book is available over there afterwards to buy and Omar will sign it to selfies, the whole thing. Um, the works themselves are all also for sale, so the prices are, are listed over there. And I think get them while you can. Um, I do want to say... My own homemade sambals, oh, chili yeah, sauces. Yeah. I'm not um, Malaysian Maggie Beer out here. He should have bought some cuttings from his horticultural days, but wasn't allowed to bring them over the border. Um, when Omar asked me to do this, I, I, I didn't hesitate. I've got to go to London tomorrow to see my daughter. So I, I packed last week so I could prepare for this. Um, several years ago, Omar and I were in London and we're at a writers' festival. And when you're at writers' festivals overseas, you always get these pompous... Australian public servants and Grand Poobah High Commissioner Ambassador Sockholes um, getting up and telling people what a great country Australia is and the nation of the fair and, you know, we don't sink our refugees at sea, we just send them to a prison camp um, and I'm Manus. And Alexander Downer, who um, um, was once referred to as a fat, fat schoolboy's knee and I'm not fat shaming, I'm talking about his head, um, he got up and said that one of the great things about Australia is unlike the British, we had treated Aboriginal people well, um, not with the violence that the British had treated them. And I was really disgusted, but I looked around in the whole room and everyone was drinking their champagne and, oh, yes, yes, yes. And then Omar goes, get fucked. <laughs> um, so then we um, told Alexander to go fuck himself. Um, and he goes, what a cunt. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and everyone goes, oh, shh, shh, don't be impolite. Shh. This is after a man denied the fact that um, Australian governments had been trying to kill Aboriginal people for since Federation. So I knew I had a great political ally and we've had many great conversations since. And um, I do love to be called his uncle um, and I do love the way that um, he's really developing as a, an artist and more importantly, um, as a person. As the um, great football manager of Tottenham Hotspur said last Saturday, Mr Conte, it's good to be a good football, but it's much better to be a good person. And Omar Musa is a great poet and writer, but he's also a really great person. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Uncle Tony. Give it for Tony Birch, my uncle and yours. Oh, my God. Thank you so much for coming out tonight. Uh, thanks to M Pavilion, thanks to Readings. I'm going to finish off with a new, a new poem. Uh, I just put a video out for this one today. It's called Fuck Batman. It's, um, <laughs> it's the poem that I wrote in collaboration with Inua Elams. And he, um, he's an amazing poet actually. He, he envisioned COVID as kind of Batman swooping down over Gotham slash London. And so this is my response to his poem. It goes like this. The truth is... Parts of us welcomed the prophet of oblivion, its thousand rapturous faces, the flapping beat of its leathery wings, its messianic cape and accelerant of Armageddon, its balled up breath plummeting down, crumpling the traffic jams of our silent screaming. It was a weight unknown we had always known. The truth is, Parts of us secretly rejoice that we could finally drop our masks, relinquish the facade of civility and welcome the end of days. The wild children wore pasta necklaces. They hunted with sardine cans beaten into shanks. They streamed toilet paper across the emptied cities. The grandfathers listened to radio broadcasts, sanitized their hands with night brewed moonshine and came to different conclusions. The grandmothers shot Zoom bombers and grew parsley. There were voices swooping in the skies above the streets. 
We sat on our windowsills, drinking ink, singing lockdown nocturnes, cabin fever dreaming, unscrambling our future from a mess of blinding stars. We searched for patterns and rearranged history. We made jigsaw pictures of places we might never visit again. There is Mount Kinabalu and the Tamparuli Bridge. There is Samporna with yellow and pink coral. Here are the reefs that will breathe again. Here are the turtles and their quiet hymns. We grew madder yet clearer headed with each day. We cried and we laughed and we cried again. We chiseled our faces to suit our moods before settling on perverse joker smiles. We melted down all the votive candles we had lit in tribute to our pasts and recast them as clear crayons to create the myths of our tomorrows. Thank you all for coming out tonight. Thank you so much. I'll be over there signing books, selling sambal, taking heads. Much love. You're listening to an Empavillion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at empavillion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.